0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Before we begin, we want to tell you about a couple of live online events. First, on Thursday, 3rd of September, Nobel Prize winner and cell biologist Paul Nurse will be talking about one of the biggest questions of all, what is life? And
2: on Thursday, the 10th of September, we have a world exclusive with Randall Munro, creator of the popular webcomic XKCD. Together with astrophysicist Katie Mack, they'll be revealing the world's most entertaining and useless self-help guide. Expect plenty of absurd scientific advice for common real-world
1: problems. Go to newscientist.com slash events to find out more about joining our live events. Welcome to New Scientist Weekly, your essential guide to the week's happenings in science. I'm Valerie Jemison, Creative Director for New Scientist Events. Rowan is having a well-earned break from his microphone, so I'm flying the pod this week. My co-pilot is medical reporter Claire Wilson. Hello, it's great to be
2: here. Also joining us this week is New Scientist culture and comment editor Tim
1: Revel. Hi, Tim.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: On this week's show, we're discussing the nature of unconscious bias and why efforts to eliminate prejudice may actually be making the problem worse. We're also going into space to explore our sun's
2: long-lost twin, reveal the incredible superpowers of walking catfish, and we've got the latest findings on the microbiome of cancer. But first, we're going on an incredible planetary journey to some weird and wonderful worlds that could be capable of sustaining life Val, tell us more.
1: Well, when it comes to hunting for extraterrestrial life, we've always focused on Earth-like planets. So we look for rocky worlds that orbit just the right distance from the sun so that they are just the right temperature for liquid water to exist. That sounds like a pretty narrow definition to me. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And of the thousands of planets that we found around other stars, only a handful are thought to be cosy places for life. All the others, well, we've ruled them out because they orbit too close to their star, so we think they'll be scorchingly hot. And others keep a frosty distance away. But that view is now changing.
2: Uh, I suppose it's sensible to limit your search for life to places where there's liquid water,
1: because we know on Earth at least that where there's water, there's life. Yeah, planetary scientists aren't arguing with that. They're now just pointing out that there are other ways liquid water could exist – even within our solar system.
0: Ah, And we've already seen evidence of that, right? Um, We think there's water hidden on Europa, one of the moons of Jupiter, and on Saturn's moon, Enceladus. And that's despite the fact that the planets themselves are giant balls of gas that are far too distant from the sun to have water on the surface.
1: Yeah, and that's a great example of this new way of thinking We're pretty sure Europa and Enceladus have liquid oceans deep under a thick, icy crust. Now, these moons don't get their heat from the sun. Instead, they're continually being stretched and squeezed by the huge gravity of their planet.
0: Is that sort of like the way our moon's gravity tugs on the oceans to create tides?
1: Exactly. And all that squashing and squeezing creates enough heat to melt the ice under the crust. Now, if that's replicated around other stars then you're looking at habitable moons outnumbering habitable planets. And sticking with our solar system, we've spoken to planetary scientists who are saying that we've been too quick to rule out Venus and Mercury as cosy places for life. Hang on,
2: hang on. Venus is rocky and about the same size as Earth, but it's an absolute
1: hellhole. (laughs) It is a hellhole. Today, Venus is the hottest planet in the solar system, with a surface temperature of over 400 degrees, which is hot enough to melt lead. But planetary scientists think that Venus had liquid water for much of its life. Now, we go into the reasons why in this week's magazine, but the upshot is that the habitable zone around a star could be a lot further in than we've thought.
0: Cool. So all of this must open up whole new worlds that could be habitable.
1: Many, 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 many more, especially when you add in planets around stars that aren't like our sun. You know, 90% of the stars in the Milky Way are smaller, cooler stars that emit faint red light. And we haven't really studied them so carefully. And then there are dead stars too, and we think there are planets orbiting around them.
0: And what about orphan planets? Could they be habitable too? I love the way they just roam around space on their own.
1: I know. I mean, these are planets that have been kicked out by the solar systems that they grew up in and are now just sort of wandering around in space. But even though they don't have the warmth from a star, they still could have radioactive rocks that pump out heat and keep them warm. How are we going to study these worlds? Are there any missions planned? Absolutely. There are quite a few space telescopes already under construction. The James Webb Telescope is one of them, Um, but there are several more. The MAG story goes into more detail about this. Essentially, what these telescopes do is look at stars and see if a planet is somehow changing the starlight. We're even listening out for any alien broadcasts from many more stars than we've looked at before.
2: Ah, oh, well, there are at least 100 billion stars out there in the Milky Way. Come on, the all-important question is, could any of them have extraterrestrial life?
0: I mean, I think it must exist somewhere, surely. I mean, the universe is just so big, even if there is a tiny chance of life happening, it seems it must be happening in, in some other parts of the universe too. It's just a bit of a shame that anything beyond a few microbes is likely to live prohibitively far away. I mean, it's four and a half light years to our nearest star, let alone anything further afield. I mean, what do you think, Val?
1: Well, I think it comes down to the numbers. I think the numbers are really, really compelling. A hundred billion stars, and and that's a lower estimate. And then think of all of the planets that you have and all of the moons and this new way of thinking. And I think when you put it together out there, I think the numbers, surely they are our habitable worlds out there. But I think it's really important to point out that just because a place can sustain life and is habitable, it doesn't mean there's already life there. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week. It's our celebration of sometimes unloved but always fascinating organisms. What is it this week, Claire? Well, this week it's the walking catfish Clarius
2: batrachus which is native to South East Asia.
1: Okay, you got me a walking fish. Tell us more.
2: Well, actually, there are quite a few species of fish that leave the water to hunt for prey or escape predators or move to a better pond or something. Some eels can live quite happily out of water and crawl on land, for instance. Fish called mudskippers can
1: even climb trees and rock faces. Wow, so... Okay, the walking catfish isn't the only landlubber then. It breathes air and it walks on its fins to nearby pools. So, what's the new discovery about it? Well, we've always thought that um, these amphibious
2: fish find their way around land using their vision. But walking catfish are a bit of a mystery. They come ashore at night and they have these tiny, underdeveloped eyes.
1: Okay, so they're probably not using their sense of sight. But, you know, we know that animals have incredible senses, you know, even fish. You know, just look at sharks. They can also sense faint electrical fields and even pressure changes in the water. And the key is
2: in the water. Fish evolve their senses of smell and taste in the water, which is why they can smell and taste compounds a long way away. So how do they do on land?
1: Don't tell me they're like fish out of water.
2: Oh, well, that's where the new work comes in. Researchers in the US wanted to test if the fish could smell chemicals in the air. So they caught 150 walking catfish, put them in a little pen on the ground and wafted various smells their way.
0: (laughs) This sounds excellent. I can really picture it. What happened next?
2: Well, the fish flopped away from horrible hydrogen sulphide, the smell of rotten eggs, but they chased down the scent of pond water and an amino acid called L-alanine that catfish go crazy for in water. So it's the first time a fish has been spotted using what's called chemoreception out of water.
0: And so do we know how the walking catfish smell through the air?
2: Well the researchers think it's down to the walking catfish's body and whiskers being covered in taste buds.
0: So they're basically just swimming tongues, that's sort of part amazing and part disgusting.
1: <laughs> right, so animal sensors are always fascinating, aren't they? But Claire, are there any other reasons for studying this?
2: Well, walking catfish are an invasive species in Florida, so understanding how they make their pond-hopping decisions could help stop their spread.
0: I noticed that the title of the research paper is pretty good. Why did the invasive walking catfish cross the road?
2: Yeah, well, now we know how as well as why.
0: Time out. It's time for our regular reminder of the bargain offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout, and you'll get access to a whole range of stuff available to subscribers.
2: Yes, there's loads of premium content, videos, features, interviews and an amazing archive of work going back 20 years. So use pod 20 at checkout on newscientist.com to get your bargain. Now, before we get into our next story, here's a riddle. A father and son are in a terrible car crash and are rushed to hospital by ambulance. Sadly, the father dies on the way, but the boy makes it to the hospital and is taken straight into the operating theatre because he needs life-saving brain surgery. The surgeon, who's on duty at the time, takes a look at the boy and says, oh no, it's my son. What's the explanation, Val? Uh, uh. Uh, Tim, do you have an idea? (laughs) Uh,
0: I must confess I have actually heard this one before, but I will admit, somewhat embarrassingly, it did catch me out the first time around, at least for a moment.
2: OK, well, for those who haven't heard it before, the original answer for this riddle, when I first heard it a long time ago, is that the brain surgeon is, shock, horror, a woman. Of course. Well, maybe that didn't catch so many people out, as these days an increasing number of surgeons are women. But some of us, even those of us who may consider ourselves feminists, as I do, may have expected a surgeon to be a man. I am mortified that
1: I fell into that trap, really mortified.
0: Hang on a second, though. Couldn't the surgeon still be a man? I mean, there's no reason to believe that this boy doesn't have two dads.
1: Oh, you're right. I've fallen into another trap. Oh, OK, I'm, I'm doubly mortified now.
2: <laughs> well, don't feel too bad, because we may all have unconscious biases, which is exactly what our next story is about. It's the cover feature in this week's magazine, written by Pragya Agawal. The idea here is that no matter how much you may think you are not sexist, not racist, not homophobic or anything else, you may have some underlying assumptions about the way the world usually works that do in fact reflect prejudices about groups of people who
1: aren't like you in some way. So you're saying that someone could passionately feel with all their heart that we shouldn't judge people by the colour of the skin. They could despise racism, but in spite of all of this, they might still be less likely to promote someone at work from a minority background because they've got unconscious prejudices.
2: Yes, that's exactly it. Now, this idea came to the fore in the 1990s when psychologists were able to show that you could test and measure the extent of someone's unconscious biases.
0: Well, how do you do that? How do you tap into the unconscious mind?
2: Well, you ask people to look at, for instance, pictures of black or white faces and to pair them with words like angry or clever while measuring their reaction times. You can adapt it to measure views on sex, body type, anything. And it's hard to overstate just how influential this method has been. And recently, interest in this field has
1: exploded. Yeah, with the Black Lives Matter movement protests going on in the US and many other countries, there's never been so much attention on whether even well-meaning people might have underlying prejudices.
2: Yes, but even before the most recent series of protests started happening, the ones triggered by the death of George Floyd in the US, our unconscious biases have become very big business. Many, many companies and institutions insist that their employees take tests such as this. There are also many training courses on diversity that aim to reduce our unconscious biases. But that's got to be a good thing, hasn't it? Well, there's a problem. A couple of problems, in fact. Firstly, all these diversity training courses at companies, universities, charities and so on, there are now questions over whether they work. Some studies have suggested they can actually make people's prejudices worse.
0: What? How does that happen?
2: Well, it's not entirely clear, but theories are that they can sometimes reinforce prejudices or perhaps they can be counterproductive because people can be resistant to this kind of force-feeding.
1: Mm, Yeah, certainly. If someone tries to make you do something, it can make you want to do the opposite, can't it?
2: And there's an even bigger problem. The entire body of science behind unconscious bias testing has been called into question. Really? Yes. Some studies have questioned whether it's only measuring unconscious reactions. It could also be measuring conscious processes. Also, if you give the same test to the same person on different days, it turns out that the results aren't very reliable. They can change from day to day, perhaps because a lot of things can affect our reaction times like physical functioning on the day. And most damning of all, some studies suggest that people who, for instance, are measured to have high unconscious bias, it's only very weakly linked to biased behaviour in the real world. So what's the point of it? So can we not trust any of it? Well, it's hard to know where we should go from here. Um, diversity training and unconscious bias testing is a huge industry uh, making a lot of money and I really doubt it's going to disappear. Um, Obviously it would be terrible if we stopped trying to make sure we don't behave in prejudiced ways uh, but I personally have a lot less faith after reading this article in anyone trying to tell me that training and testing are the solutions to prejudice in society.
1: Pragya Agarwal goes into these issues in more detail and also gives advice on how to tackle your prejudices in this week's magazine. Be sure to check it out. There goes the sci-fi alert. That means there's something in the news this week that's already appeared in science fiction. Tim, what's going on?
0: This is a pretty amazing story from our space reporter, Leah Crane. Billions of years ago, our solar system may have had two suns. What the sun had a twin? Well, possibly. It's the conclusion of two researchers from Harvard, Amir Siraj and Avi Loeb. Loeb, especially, is a bit of a new scientist favourite, as he often comes up with slightly outlandish but plausible ideas.
2: Hmm, how plausible is this one then?
0: It's got a few pretty good pieces of evidence supporting it. The first is that it helps explain the mysterious Oort cloud. This is a belt of icy objects at the edge of the solar system that is up to around 100,000 times as far from the sun as Earth is, and so the sun's gravity has only a very loose hold on it. The question is, if the sun's gravitational pull barely touches it now, how did we get the Oort cloud in the first place? So the two researchers ran some calculations and found that our solar system would be five times more likely to have a cloud like the Oort cloud if it once had two stars rather than just one.
1: Hmm, so two suns would have a greater gravitational pull, and so would be better at capturing distant icy objects. I guess that sounds really quite plausible, but is it likely?
0: Well, it's not unlikely. The fact that the sun is all lonesome at the moment actually makes it a bit more of an odd one out than if it had a friend. More than half of stars like our sun also have a companion.
2: Well, hang on, hang on. If the sun had a twin, where has its twin gone now?
0: Probably what would have happened is that a passing star would have pulled it away from our sun, never to return again.
2: It dumped our star
1: for something better.
0: Yeah, it's a pretty common occurrence in young star clusters.
1: Okay, so um, young star clusters are starry maelstroms, aren't they? So um, yeah, this this, this is going to sound more plausible to me.
0: There's also another slightly more mysterious mystery that a second sun would help explain. The problem of Planet Nine. You mean Pluto? Ha ha ha, very funny. As you know, Pluto hasn't been a planet since 2006 because it's just too small. But let's not have that argument now. Planet 9 is the name given to a distant planet in the solar system that we think might exist. Though astronomers haven't actually spotted it yet, there are some objects at the edge of the solar system that have such really weird orbits around the sun that they think there must be a planet in the region. But how our lonely star would have captured Planet 9 is also a bit of a mystery.
1: Okay, so let me guess, two stars would have been better than one for capturing Planet Nine?
0: Correct. According to the researchers, two stars would actually be 20 times better than one for capturing Planet Nine.
1: Oh, that's really exciting. And so I'm kind of guessing what the sci-fi link must be this week, but go on, what's the sci-fi link?
0: Well, multiple stars appears in a lot of different sci-fi. Tatooine, for example, the home planet of Anakin and Luke Skywalker, orbits two stars. Nightfall by Isaac Asimov follows a planet that orbits six suns and is constantly bathed in sunlight, but perhaps my favourite multiple star story of late is The Three-Body Problem, a book by Cixin Shin Liu. In the book, there is a distant planet that is orbiting three stars, but this configuration is very unstable. The planet can spend a long time following one particular trajectory, before suddenly being pulled into a completely different path around the suns. This means that people who live there have to put up with huge extremes of heat and cold over very long periods of time. I won't give away too much more of the book, but it's got culture, politics, conspiracies, murder, and it puts our place in the universe into perspective. It's, it's really very good.
1: It sounds great. Um, didn't we um, interview the author fairly recently?
0: <laughs> very smooth. Yes, you can read our excellent interview with Cixin Liu from a couple of years ago on the New Scientist website, and we'll put a link to it on Twitter.
1: Next up, an intriguing story about cancer and what the microbes that live in and around tumours can tell us. Yes, you're
2: probably familiar with the idea that living inside every one of us are trillions of bacteria, viruses and fungi that make up our microbiome. Recent findings have shown that cancers have their own community of microbes living inside them and around them.
0: Right, so is this a bit like the gut microbiome? We've learned that this is hugely important to our health. Is it a similar story for the tumour microbiome and cancer?
2: I've written before about how gut bacteria might be responsible for colon cancer in some cases. The new work that we report in this week's magazine shows that the tumour microbiome could help to diagnose cancer and even predict how well someone will
1: respond to treatment. Now, hang on. Cancer is fiendishly complex. You know, if you add on the complexity of the microbiome, how do we even begin? Begin to unravel what's going on here. Well earlier
2: this year researchers at the
1: University of California in San Diego
2: looked at 18,000 tumour samples covering 33 different types of cancer. They found that certain types of microbes were present in certain types of cancer. The match was so good that they were able to predict the kind of cancer someone had just
1: by looking at the bacteria. So this sounds like a could help us um, with diagnosis, but obviously I'm no specialist in this. You know, can it help? Well, hopefully, the standard
2: way to diagnose cancer is to take a tissue biopsy, take a small pinch of tissue out of the tumour. Lots of research is going into less invasive ways to get a diagnosis, and into something called a liquid biopsy. So this involves taking a blood sample and looking for cell or DNA fragments from the tumour. It's a really neat idea that would avoid uh, some of the downsides of having a tissue biopsy, like the pain and infection risk. And it means you could monitor the cancer
0: over time. Claire, I'm sensing a butt.
2: Well, yes, liquid biopsies aren't yet accurate enough to replace ordinary tissue biopsies. So the hope is that the tumour microbiome could feed into this work.
0: Do the microbes give us any other clues, like whether they can help make new treatments, for example?
2: Yes, a team at the UC National Cancer Institute were wondering the same thing. They wanted to know if the microbes could predict how well people with cancer would respond to treatment and how likely they are to survive the disease. So they took the tumour data and they trained an algorithm to use the bacteria to forecast survival.
0: Hmm. Not being a good week for algorithms in the UK. No. So, so how did this one do? It's not a mutant oh. algorithm, is it?
2: Yes. OK-ish. It was correct 60 to 70% of the time. But surprisingly, that's more accurate than doctors' estimates at the moment. Um, They also looked at whether the presence of microbes might influence how well tumours respond to drug treatments. And again, that's surprisingly tricky and doctors have to make a kind of educated guess based on similar cancers. But it it is a bit of guesswork. Um, There are more details in the story. But for five of these drugs, the algorithm could predict how well the tumour responded to treatment. Now, it's important not to overhype this um, because it is several years away from reaching routine clinical practice. But I think this is really fascinating because um, I think we're really at the beginning of our journey in understanding the microbiome in health and
1: disease. And so it's got a lot of potential. That's your lot for this week. We haven't talked about COVID-19 but you'll find all the latest news about it on our website newscientist.com and we've got a special digital edition that you might want to check out too. Thanks for joining us Tim and thanks for your excellent hosting skills Claire and thank you too for listening. Remember as a podcast listener you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout.
2: Yes, go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter POD20 at checkout for your discount. Do share your love for our show with your family and friends and spread the word. We're on Twitter at New Pod and you can email us at podcasts at newscientist.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care. Goodbye.
0: Bye. Bye.